eternal life. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Amen. This is the very word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father God, this morning as we come before you, and your word is open before us, we ask that your Holy Spirit would superintend over our hearts, that hearing your word and and it being preached, that we would be transformed, and we would even be transforming around us. We ask this, Father God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, for the last few weeks, we've been looking at these passages out of Luke's gospel. And... Thinking of this in terms of generosity, radical generosity. And what we're seeing from Jesus' teaching consistently over and over again is that the distinguishing mark of someone whose heart has been legitimately transformed by the gospel of grace, that heart is marked by radical generosity in all areas of life. Now, don't get hung up on the word radical, thinking that it is a contemporary word or it's just us trying to be cool and and talking about generosity. It is an old word. It comes from the Latin word radix, which means heart or core or root. It is the center of the person or the thing. So radical generosity is something that comes from deep inside, from the very basement of your soul. It's not something that is just a part of this part of your life. It is central to your heart. It is radical. It is at the root of who you are. In our passage today, Jesus is teaching about this radical generosity and wealth in particular And I think he gives us at least three things here. And this is what I saw, and there are more points to pull out of this, but let's focus on these, really the key points, which are, first, is that he talks about the danger of wealth. Secondly, Jesus teaches about the freedom that comes from generosity. And then thirdly, there's a new kind of wealth. So the danger of wealth, 
the freedom of generosity, and a new kind of wealth. Let's look at that first one, the danger of wealth. In verses 18 through 26, this is a broad picture of this context, this passage. But Jesus is talking with the the people and the disciples, and there is someone who comes up to him and asks a question. And this person is identified by the other gospel writers as rich, as young, and as a ruler. The gospels bring those three words to this one person. He is wealthy, he is young, and he's powerful. And think power or rule, not like we think in terms of uh, civil government, but also religious authority, right? And it's the only guy in in all of Scripture, that comes into the presence of Jesus and leaves, recorded as leaving sad, very sad. The only person, something very weighty going on here, very significant going on here. And Jesus says of the wealthy, he says this, and this is where most people get hung up, and I don't want us to get hung up on this today. But he says, hey, it's It's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a wealthy man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we love these kind of details, but we shouldn't get caught up in these details. What does that mean? Well, it could mean a literal camel, because a city like Jerusalem was a walled city, and every walled city has gates. And in those gates, those gates are open during from dawn till dusk, and then they close. The city is safe. But in those big gates are small doors, human-sized doors. One person at a time could come through. It would prevent them being just run through by people who are attacking. And if you happen to be out after dark and you wanted to come into the city, then you would have to bang on the gate door, and they would say, okay, you pass. You can come through the eye of the needle, the small door. And you say, well, well, I got this camel here. What are we going to do with him? Well, he can come too. If you can get, you have to unburden your camel, take everything off of your camel, and then you're going to have to get your camel to kneel down and then crawl through the door. Now, I have a dog named Chip. It's hard enough to get a dog to just lay down, let alone crawl. I mean, think of a camel. I mean, difficult, very difficult. It could mean that. Or it could mean that something different. Well, very similar, actually, but in a different way. It's interesting that the the Arabic word for camel is the same word for twine. Now, it's hard enough to get a piece of string to go through that needle, you know, oh, try that again, ah, messed it up, you keep trying, but think of a piece of twine, harder yet, the whole point is, it's hard, it's hard for the wealthy to enter into the kingdom of heaven, now that's rough on us to hear, because we live in the wealthiest county in our state, right, we live in one of the wealthiest counties in, in America, So some of this is going to apply to us, right? But there's all kinds of wealth. It's not just money like gold or dollars. You can be wealthy in a lot of ways. You can be wealthy in knowledge. You can be wealthy in all kinds of ways. He's saying, look, 
if you're trusting in that, it'd be very difficult for you to get into heaven because you're trusting in that. The disciples heard this and they said, who can be saved? If this guy can't be saved, then who can be saved? Why would they say that? Well, because they had the same kind of you know, sort of paradigm that we have that, look, if someone is quote-unquote blessed by God, then they must be right, you know. This guy was wealthy. He had financial resource. He was young. He was healthy. And he also was a religious ruler. He was probably a Pharisee. And he, he kept all the rules. We look at this exchange between he and Jesus, and we see that he's, Jesus says, you know all the commandments, right? And he goes, right. I've kept every one since I was younger. This was a good guy. This was an upright person. If anybody could get into heaven on their own, he could have. And it's a legitimate question that the disciples ask. Hey, if he can't be saved, if his good works don't save him, then who can be saved? Because this man has kept all the commandments. He's a really good guy. He knows the word of God. He's faithful in church. He tithes like the Pharisees tithe. There's no hint that he got all of his money in any illegitimate way. I mean, he's worked hard for that, and it's still not good enough. He comes to Jesus and says, even though I think I'm doing all the right things, morally upright, religiously faithful, I'm, I'm a good person, I'm doing all this stuff, and something's missing. I've kept all the rules. I've done all the right things. I haven't wasted my money. I haven't been mean or cruel to people. I've been in church every day of my life. I'm trying my hardest. And by everybody else's standards, they think that I'm a good guy. They think that I am righteous. But I know in my heart, this man says, I know in my heart there's something missing. And he comes to Jesus, and I think he's honest. I don't think he's just boastful or prideful. I think he's saying, look, Jesus, everybody here thinks I have everything in order in my life. But I know there's something I'm missing because I'm still longing for that peace. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What else can I? Because what I've done doesn't give it to me. He knows that. And he's honest about that. And he comes to Jesus with that. And this is, this is for, for you know, Bible geeks like me, this is, I love stuff like this. Because what's happening here, I've been in the ministry for 38 years, right? And I have never, when I'm at Lowe's or Home Depot, I've never had someone come up to me and say, hey, what must I do to be saved? I'll do it right here. You just tell me and I'll do it. That's never happened to me. It's usually a conversation, you know, time passes, but never just on the spot. It's exactly what happens to Jesus here. And I'm just thinking, all right, we got it. The Son of God, someone says, how do I get saved? And Jesus, that's just a, a high, slow one over the plate, you know, right? He's going to crush this thing out of the park. Man, you've got to pray this prayer. Where is it? 
hey, you've got to walk an aisle. Where's that? You need to be baptized too. You know, he doesn't give him any of that stuff. No four spiritual laws. I mean, nothing. Jesus, instead of trying to fix this guy's religion, he takes a deep dive into his soul. He's not going to spread one more ounce of religion on this guy. He's not going to give this guy one more thing to do because one more thing to do won't fix his heart. And it just blows the minds of the disciples. He takes a deep dive into this guy's heart and he says, I'm not going to give you one more thing you can do that will not give you the peace you're looking for. Instead, I'm going to, like a great physician, show you where you are really needy. He brings up two things that are welded together, that are bonded together, that form a spiritual blindness and really are arresting his heart, preventing him from seeing his sin and seeing his Savior. And they're fairly common things. He brings up two. Wealth and self-righteousness. And wealth and self-righteousness almost always go together. When you do all the right things and you accumulate a whole bunch of goodness in your life, I mean, your 401k is, is rocking it. Your kids are going to great schools like Georgia. Or any, I mean, your world's turning out perfect. All your ducks are in a row. You are wealthy. And you begin to think, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Got this thing nailed. Wealth and self-righteousness always go together. Because when God is not at your core, wealth and success breed self-righteousness. But self-righteousness never gives us the peace that we were made to have through Christ. You begin to say things like, I did this or I earned this, rather than all I have is a gift from God. The wealthy, self-reliant, see salvation as just one more thing to accomplish, one more box to check off. And we say things like this guy, what must I do to be right with God? And Jesus comes down kind of hard on this guy. He singles him out because wealth is such a spiritual danger. It's not because wealth and money is inherently evil, but because nothing reinforces self-righteousness like money and success. Jesus says to him, I want you to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You see, money and wealth is, there's a danger attached to it. It can blind you to your need for Jesus. Secondly, there's a freedom, though, that comes from generosity, that comes from knowing Christ as Savior. He says, Jesus says to him in verse 22, one thing you still lack, sell everything you have and distribute it to the poor. And then come and follow me. And it is, it is the one thing he can't do. Because to a self-righteous, self-made person, to give, to sell everything you have, 
and then take that money and give it to someone who hasn't worked for it is just offensive. But Jesus is pointing out something to him is that there's something that you're trusting in more than me. The point is that you're trusting in your resources, you're trusting in yourself, and you need to trust in me. This one thing that Jesus points out that the man does not have, that could not give him the spiritual transformation that he so earnestly desired, is that he was following his own efforts, his own salvation. And he couldn't become radically generous because he was still in bondage to himself. He says to the disciples that you'll have treasure in heaven so that you can follow me. Hearing this, the young man went away sad because he had so much wealth and it was a burden to him. And he was following his own treasure instead of following Christ. But there's a freedom that comes from generosity. When Christ is your treasure, then you can be generous. Think of it this way. If you owned your house outright and your 401k was fully funded and totally secure, you'd be free. But when you have to manage your possessions, when you have to protect them, when you have to guard them, you have to follow them. You can't follow Christ. But there is freedom when you have generosity. When you have Christ, you can be radically generous. Jesus says, because there's a new kind of wealth I want to tell you about. There's a new kind of wealth. The only thing that will liberate us from the dangers of that old kind of wealth is to be raptured in this new kind of wealth. In verse 28, Peter says to Jesus, we've all left everything and we follow to follow you. And bless his heart, Peter you know, puts foot and mouth again. Jesus is, is, is saying, look, it's not about what you have or what you give up. It's about who you have and who you are holding on to. It's not about giving up everything. I mean, Jesus meets uh, a number of wealthy people. In Scripture, in John chapter 3, he meets Nicodemus. He doesn't tell Nicodemus to sell everything he has. In the next chapter, in chapter 19 in, the, in Luke's Gospel, he meets Zacchaeus, and he doesn't tell Zacchaeus to sell everything he has. And then there's Joseph of Arimathea, the wealthy man who gave Jesus his grave, and he doesn't tell him to sell everything he has because those things weren't holding their heart captive. With wealth, there is danger that it can hold you. But there is freedom that comes from generosity when you can give everything away. When you can say, God, whatever you want is yours. If you want it, I'll give it. There's freedom in that. Because it all comes down to a new kind of wealth. Peter says, look, we've given up everything to follow you, but Jesus is saying it's not about what you give up or what you don't give up, it's about who you have. 
Jesus says in in verses 29 and 30, I tell you the truth, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents, children, for the sake of the kingdom of God will will fail to receive many times as much in this age and the age to come. Eternal life. There's a new kind of wealth that Jesus is offering. And when that is at your core, then you can be and you will be radically generous with all the temporal stuff that God may or may not give you. And you can be generous because it's who you are. It's interesting in this passage, there are actually two rich young rulers. Do you see it? Do you see the second one? There's a second rich young ruler in this passage. You go, wait a minute, I've seen this before. I don't see. There's a second one. The second rich young ruler is Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus, the wealthiest person in the universe. I mean, he has all of this as his. And he's strong. He's young. He is not giving his, his wealth away because he's decrepit and old and he doesn't need it anymore. He gives it away because he can. He's rich, he's young, and he is sovereign. He is the ruler of the universe. And what does this rich young ruler do with all of his wealth? He's radically generous. He not only gives all of that away, he gives himself away. And why would he do that? And this is just amazing. If you could just wrap your head around this one thing, it'll change your life. He gives all that up. He is radically generous. Why? Because he loves you. That's it. Because he loves you. I mean, will you let that sink in? That the God of the universe loves you. He could have stayed in heaven. He could have enjoyed the fellowship of of the Father and the Holy Spirit, worship from the angels and all the creating beings. Instead, he gives himself up for you because he loves you. He thinks you're incredible. You may have woken up this morning and think, you know, man, I really stink. I wish I hadn't failed to do this, and I bet people don't like me, and you know, that sort of thing. Jesus never said that. He thinks you are awesome. He loves you. And it really breaks his heart to know that you might not believe that. Some of you have children and grandchildren, and you love them. And some days they don't think you love them. And it breaks your heart to think that your children don't believe you love them. Jesus said, I love you. How could I prove it to you? Well, how about this? How about I give myself to you fully? I'll even die for you. That's what this table is all about. This is the Lord's table. It is a symbol and it is a sign of his grace to us. We feast on this grace, on this love, on this radical generosity. In a moment, we're going to pass these elements around to you. They're common juice and common bread. 
I think we buy this stuff at Publix. Nothing special about it. But in this context, when it represents the body and the blood of Christ, both now and forevermore, and all God's people said, I love you. God bless you. God bless you. Yeah.